Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely excited to be joined by football broadcasting legend Tim Vickery, who is also one half of one of my favourite football shows, the World Football Phone. And Tim, our legendino, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here. Let's kick the ball around for a few minutes. Why not? Tim, how's all in sunny Rio? Well, it's not sunny at all. I mean, we're, we're deep into spring now. And it's just horrible. It's been like Manchester in autumn for, for almost a month solid. Uh, I, I met yesterday, I met a son of Erin, uh, a young Irish football journalist who's, who's just over here for a, for a month or so. Uh, and uh, I could see how disappointed he was. You know, he's come to the land of, 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 of sun and he, he, I don't think he's seen any. He'd be probably better off sticking in Dublin. Yeah, not too dissimilar to Hemel Hempstead, it sounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a kind of similarity because when Hemel was built with lots of cheap 1950s concrete and, and so was a lot of Rio. So, uh, you know, when, uh, when I see graffiti, graffiti splad con concrete look like, looking like it's about to uh, collapse, it does remind me a little bit of where I grew up. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, how you ended up in Brazil is anyone's guess, <laughs> I suppose, Tim. But, you know, when football comes into play, obviously it's taken up so much of your professional life. But on a personal level, away from absolutely everything, I mean, what does the game of football mean to you? It means, and I feel like I was born into it. My, my dad was was a nearly man. And sport was was his life, really, my dad. And he was he was very old, you know, when I was born. He, he, was, in his, he was past 40, which was very rare then. And, the, and his story is that he couldn't get in a second world war um, because he was, he was short sighted and it killed him. It, it killed any chance of, you know, with his mates were going fighting and dying and, 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 and he was in the home guard and working in the Woolwich Arsenal as a draftsman and it killed any kind of, any kind of self-esteem. So his proving ground, if you like, was sport. His life was football in the winter and cricket in the summer. That's all he did really. I think, I think really that's why he didn't get married until he was 40. Because, you know, he was up until that time, he was just doing sport. Uh, and he had trials, I think, for Charlton. And he was recommended uh, a cricket to Hampshire. But he, 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 he was good, but he wasn't quite good enough. So as he's, as he's first born, I was kind of handled the responsibility for achieving those dreams for him, you know. Uh, and it was very obvious to me at an early stage that I wasn't going to do it. That I'd inherited the enthusiasm, but but none of the talent. And he used to go and watch me and just shake his head on the on the on the on the, the, the sidelines. Um, so I was kind of born into it. It's how it's how, for example, I learned to read. And in the in the pre-Panini days, you used to get like a sticker album that had little biographies of the players. You know, I can vividly remember buying the, the first ever sticker album, which was 71, 72. And sticking in the, the uh, with the, the the stickers with uh, with with my dad, so it's, it's how I learned to read. Um, it's how I was socialised, you know, because bunch of kids together, you just throw them a ball and everyone's mates. It taught me about the world, you know. I, I didn't make it out of England until I was twenty three. My old man got to eighty four without ever getting further than a weekend in Dublin. All roads seem to lead to Dublin. Uh, but, you know, I knew countries around the world when I was a kid, you know, because of football, because of, of the World Cup. So it socialised me, educated me, um, and uh, I, owe it, I owe it a huge, huge debt. It's amazing, really. There's something there to be said about the son realising the father's dreams 
as you alluded to. And there's something kind of lost within modern day football, you know, going for, you know, as you said yourself, being a council estate kid in Hemel Hempstead, you know, getting to see the world through the lens yeah. of football. But yeah. I mean, obviously it's become so much more in relation to your professional life, but what were the series of events to I suppose, that led to your first breakthrough into football? Well, the, the first one was the decision to, to move to Brazil, which was made, uh, and I was, your life takes, if you're open to it, your life takes lots of strange twists and turns along the way. And purely by chance, I mean, I'd left college and we'd set up a magazine, a kind of comedy magazine that had some sport in it. Um, and uh, we went bust very quickly. And uh, we, we had a break. We had a chance to write for Rory Bremner. I think he's still big. He does impressions. We had a chance to, this is late 80s, we had a chance to write for his TV series. Uh, and I was in like script meetings with people like David Baddiel, who went on to be famous. And, and it was obvious right at the start that I couldn't play at that level. And then there is nothing more useless in the world than a comedy writer isn't funny. So I'd know I was just lost. You know, I had no idea what I was going to do. And purely by chance, I ended up in, in a theatre in the West End of London. I'm not really into theatre, but I loved it. It was a time of my life. Um, and we had a bar downstairs that was full of Brazilians working. And I started to get curious. Uh, and uh, much as I loved my time, it was out every night. And it, it, was, it was wine, women and song and women, those, those years in my life. But it wasn't going to last forever. You know, I was going to have to do something else. Uh, the theatre was always on the verge of closing and so on. And, and I, I was worried about being mid-30s and unemployed and unemployable. So what am I going to do? Uh, and uh, it, was, it, it had been in my mind for a while. And this is a bit cruel, really, but there's, there's, a, there's a key moment for me when I thought, I think I can make a living at, at this. And that's when, this is where it gets cruel, when Graham Taylor got appointed as, as England manager. Uh, and I just thought, it was, I just couldn't believe it. I love that England side, the one that went to the 1990 World Cup. And just being put in the hands of this fella who is just clearly, clearly not up to the job. And it broke my heart. And I remember that, that day, it was a Sunday when he was appointed, just after he'd been appointed. And I was at the theatre and I had nothing to do. I just had to be there to accept a delivery or something. So I bought all of the Sunday papers. And the first thing I turned to in all of them was the articles about Graham Taylor being appointed England manager. And the vast majority were saying, yes, he's the right man for the job. You know, there were one or two, like Brian Glanville, for example, bless him. Who, who ended up saying England would be better off without a manager, which was uh, <laughs> one of the most sensible lines about the Graham Taylor era. Uh, but the vast majority were saying, yeah, this is the man for the job. And he so obviously wasn't, you know, I and mean, it, it ended up being more, in the true meaning of the word, more pathetic than I could ever have, have imagined. Just a grotesque farce of watching someone jump out of a plane and not know how to open his parachute. Just hideous. And this is where he gets cruel because he's dead and, you know, he's not here to defend himself. But he was shit. And he was shit for all the wrong reasons. He was shit because he didn't know what he was doing and he was shit because he was an ego on the loose. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I know that, that sounds really cruel, but sorry, you've chosen the job. You know, it's a public job and it goes with a territory. People get very angry with him and go, I attack him, you know. Uh, he's like some great saint or something like that, you know, someone who, who stitched up his own mates for financial gain. 
Uh, although I'm, I'm, prepared, I'm prepared to accept that he was humbled by the experience and he was always very engaging, but I think he, he probably became a much better human being afterwards, which is why people remember him as a great bloke. But reading the press stuff and all these people saying he was the right man for the job. And I was thinking if they make, if they can make a living right in this, this wank, you know, I think I can probably get in this game. I can't possibly do worse. So it was in the back of my mind for a while. And, uh, um, that was from from 1990. Um, what, what am I, I going to do later on? And the chance came. I decided to make the plunge just after the 1994 World Cup. You know, I'd been to Brazil for a recce and thought, it, yeah, I thought it'd be. And just with the the just crazy naivety of youth, thinking, oh yeah, I'll go over there and and everything will be easy. And of course, it wasn't at all. You know, it was it, it was it was a real struggle, and I wouldn't have had it any other way really. Um, but the build-up to the 1998 World Cup helped me enormously. And one thing that just helped me amazingly was, was uh, in a backhand kind of way, was Nike getting involved with the Brazil team. Because, and I'm going to cast you back to a world before, before you will know it, um, Brazil at that point was something that only existed once every four years in World Cups. You know, up, and, up till and including the 1994 World Cup, you didn't know the players before the tournament. That was part of the, the charm of the World Cup. You got to know them during the tournaments. I mean, Nike got involved and they, they tried with, you know, the North American sports and they'd realised that football was the global game. And they'd realised that, especially back then, Brazil was everyone's second favourite team. So they signed up Brazil. And then the marketing campaign went into, uh, went into overdrive. And they were doing these fantastic adverts, you know, the one that everyone remembers of a certain age, them in the airport lounge. And uh, so the difference between the 94 World Cup and 98 World Cup is Nike. Because as a consequence of all Nike's marketing stuff, the interest in that Brazil team going to the World Cup was immense. You know, whereas in 1994, the average British fan didn't, didn't know the team beforehand. By 1998, they knew the team. And there was much more interest. And I was around to, to feed off that, really. So that the doors started open for me. At the start of 97, I got into World Soccer magazine. During the course of 97, um, I got into the BBC World Service. The end of 97, we started what, what later became the World Football Phone-In. Uh, and it was all the build-up to, uh, to France 98. Well, you know what, though? Tolstoy once said, to tell a great story, you need somebody to go on a journey. Yeah. And you need a main, you obviously need the protagonist, the main character, which is yourself. And it's no irony that Tim. Yeah, although I, I, I'm going to have to, because I think lesson number one, lesson number one is your subject is more important than yourself. So the story is the protagonist. Without doubt, it's it's never. If you put yourself in an article or a report, mm. it has to serve a purpose to sell the you know to to, to tell the story. Yeah. Um. And I, I think for me, in 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 terms of the way that that I approach, um, what I try to do, that that's rule number one. The subject is more important than than yourself, and if if you keep that in mind all the time, and um, for one thing, you don't get nervous. You know, you know, going on TV in a second language at the start, it can be a bit intimidating or going on. All right. You know, for the first time, it's intimidating, but it isn't because it ain't about you. It's about the story that you want to tell. 
So uh, um, uh, that, that's something I always want to make clear. You know, the, the subject is more important than the self. Yeah, totally agreed. What I wanted to get at, however, though, was on a previous podcast, I heard you remark something very intriguing about Brazil, that being for beginners. What I yeah. wanted to touch upon was obviously when you moved to Brazil, I mean, there's that cultural adaptation, you know, speaking in two different languages, you know, finding your feet and then getting your first job within the industry. I mean, how turbulent a period was that time in your lifetime? Well, it was it was the avoidance of, of starvation, really. I mean, three weeks before I came, as I said, I did a recce in 1993. And at that time, Brazil still had hyperinflation, meaning that if you had hard currency, you were richer every day. So that was my kind of expectation when I came back, hoping it, for it to be definitive in 94. And three weeks before I'd arrived, they'd introduced this new currency, which, uh, which they still have, the Hiao, which was an inflation-busting plan. And it was pegged artificially high. It was pegged higher than the dollar. And that meant that the money that I was bringing across really didn't go very far. And I, I was, on I, I, the, the first, first year or so, the first few months, were just desperate desperate when 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 i when i realized how fast the money was going down you know uh and, and there, there were there were a fair few times when you know there were days when i couldn't eat um it was it was hard you know when i i had I, i'd prepared for this and i, I had to get a job teaching english uh, I'd, I'd done a training course course on i had so i had that to kind of fall back on um, but that at uh, the start, that wasn't bringing in very much. So it was it, it was it was desperate. And the only thing that stopped me going home was it being winter and having no money and no job back home. You know, how can you go back with your tail between your legs in that situation? So that was that was tough. Um, it was uh, I can't. Yeah. Looking back, I can't believe I put myself through it. You know, as you get older, all you see is the risks when you're a kid. You know, when you don't see the risks, you just charge ahead. And the world's all the better for it. Um, but it was it was a great learning experience because the experience of teaching English taught me so much. I and mean, thankfully, they saw that I had the, the, the school where I was working for saw that I had an intellectual level to give lessons to adults rather than groups of spoiled Brazilian adolescents, which is that 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 is. I don't really believe in wasted time. I think you can get you can get something from any experience. You can't get very much from teaching a class of spoiled Brazilian adolescents. There, there, there's little upside to that one. But I didn't do that very much. It was mostly adults in the financial market and so on. Who, and I was, so I was learning stuff and learning the language through how they were speaking English. You know, the way that they were ordering their sentences. It's a great way to learn a foreign language. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's trying to say that. And he's thinking in Portuguese, so it's coming out that way. And I learned lots about the country and lots about kind of financial market things that I didn't really know much about anyway. Um, so that was good experience. And the experience of, of going to games, I mean, it was still very cheap then to go to games. You know, it was still the Maracanã in the old days when it was a bit of a bear pit. And that, that was great, having that experience, because the press box can isolate you. You know, uh, it's one of the worst things about the press box, how it can isolate you from from the experience of the supporter. Uh, and, and, and so my experience for for the first couple of years, at least, was that of the supporter. Uh, and and that, that was great. And so you're just learning so much. And I was lucky in that when I arrived, there was a great crop of youngsters coming through. And also it was in the early stage of the globalization of the game. And these days. 
the good players are gone by the time they're 21. So the, the way the market works, you know, the European clubs want them at 18, 19. If they're, if they're 23 and haven't gone, there's something wrong, you know. Wasn't the way that day, that, that, but when I arrived. So the, the, the quality of the players I was seeing, I just couldn't believe it. You know, my first few games, on the first one, I saw a fellow called Savio, who, who ended up at Real Madrid. Um, second one, I saw Roberto Carlo. Roberto, look at him. You're thinking, how, is no one's no one, how, how comes no one's discovered this guy? He's a phenomenon. Rivaldo was playing, I think, that day. I don't think I hardly noticed him. You know, it was like Roberto Carlos. Um, I saw both Juninho's very early on. So the level of players you were seeing, it, it, was, it was just like discovering a, a, whole, a whole new world. It, it, it was wonderful. And I'm very grateful that it took me a good, like, two and a half years to kind of start making a living. Because in that time, you've accumulated knowledge. And I still made lots of mistakes when, when I started writing pieces. There, there, there are st there's stuff that I wrote, you know, back in the, in the late 90s that I still wince about now. But it would have been, there would have been many, many more had I just arrived and gone straight to the press box and started working. You know, that experience in, you know, on the terraces, talking to people in bars and in English lessons, that experience that wasn't directly connected to work ends up making the work much, much better. It sounds like quite the apprenticeship, really. It was like, yeah. you know, we speak about the first Panini album you began collecting back in 71, 72. It feels as though almost you were creating your own Panini album at the time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think all of us football fans were all, yeah. Because I mean, the, the the best thing I think about, even today, about South American club football, is th there's always a chance of seeing someone who he might not be particularly well known now, you know, but in five years' time he's going to be he's going to be a global sensation. You know, I was watching the uh, I was watching Barcelona Real Madrid at, at, at the weekend, and I was feeling very sorry for the Barcelona fans. Because I've got to get used to a new era now. You know, there's no, there's, the conjurer is gone. And it reminded me, watching them, reminded me of what the experience has become for South American fans. No, that fella who, all right, for Barcelona, it was, it was nearly 20 years. You know, in South American football, it may be only one or two. But that fella who's been, who's been filling your heart with joy last year, he's gone. So you've got to get used to life without him. And you take your pleasures where you can get them. And one of the pleasures is, and I hope Barcelona fans are getting something from this at the moment, is seeing the next generation. Who here is going to make a name for themselves? You know, you've got a chance now. You've got a chance to make a name for yourselves. Who's, who's going to come through? Uh, and uh, so that, that Barcelona fans, that, that, that kind of minor consolation of the, the disastrous loss of Messi that Barcelona fans are going through, that's become par for the course for, for fans in South America. Yeah, it's always the it's always the hope that kills you when you're a football fan. But I suppose being a broadcaster, I mean, over time, of course, we all know of your affiliation with Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, does it desensitize you to becoming a football fan? Do you see the game from a more broader, yeah. realistic sense? Yeah, yeah, and partly because you watch too much. Um, I don't watch as much as I used to. Uh, and there was a time when I was I was watching like four games a day from four different countries. It was easier then because because of internet streaming. It was all you know there was a site that had everything. So I'd watch a game you know in Brazil. I'd watch a game in Argentina. I'd watch one in Colombia. I'd watch Peru. I'd watch Ecuador. In the end, and especially as 
the quality is not here. The quality is in Europe these days, you know. So some of it can can be a, uh, but it does wear you down as well. And 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 sometimes your your eyes can can glaze over. Um, I do envy sometimes the the feeling of joy and of total forgetting the rest of the world that a fan can have when he or she goes to the game. You know, for for me now. Watching a game means pen and paper and making notes and tactical schemes. If I'm not doing that, I'm not really working, you know. And that, that, that's quite hard work. There's times I don't want to do that, you know. There's, there's, so uh, there's no doubt that the relationship with the game changes. And because the game generates so much money, there's so much of that side, both in a legitimate sense of like business strategies and also the kind of squalid the squalidity that can surround that, you know, with people, people wanting to get, take money out, out of the game, wanting to take out much more than, than they put in. Uh, so all of that can be depressing, but at the end of the day, there's always enough there. The, the essence, there's enough purity there to keep you hanging on. Um, there's, in, uh, there's two, I think, totally distinct pleasures that you can get from a game of football. One is that, that abandon abandoned to the emotion of the occasion and the other is that you know unlike politics or something the pieces are out there that are in the open in the chessboard so you know how is team a going to beat team b why is team b not wh wh why 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 is, is that defensive line operating so deep opening up space you know you can rationalize it as well so those two completely different sources of pleasure from the emotion and and the rationality there's enough purity there to, to to keep you hanging on, even if you know that there there is a there is a the whole squalid side to, to the business. Yeah, and it's remarkable to see how the game has evolved over the years. But even with the way you speak it about about it now, it seems like though there's one level of communication kind of deeper. It's almost like an understanding or intuition between the club and its fans. And yes. for me, I speak of personal experience in 2019. I got ten. And that I know 65, 70 games of professional football, ranging from the Copa America to that year's Champions League final to playoff finals. But for me, it was the first game of the EFL Championship season. I attended a Bristol City Leeds United, first time seeing Marcelo Bielsa coach team. And it was just, that was a sensory experience. It's <laughs> mm. a whole different podcast in of itself. But um, I mean, we spoke about Barcelona briefly, South American club football. You know, football is obviously quite cyclical, Tim. And as the game has become more and more globalised, you know, football has evolved. But has Brazil, I mean, has it evolved in line with this? There seems to be some no. bit of stagnation, yeah? Really, really hasn't. Uh, I mean, it's fascinating seeing the velocity of change in Europe. It's fascinating. Brazil got very, very stuck. when It's a huge country. And... There's a couple of things that, that mitigate against change. One is the calendar and the size of the country. It's, you know, it's, it's a giant country and there are just so many games. So um, it's difficult for coaches. You know, Hernan Crespo just found this, did very well in Argentina, came to Brazil and it, it didn't work. There's, there's, there's so many more games. There's so much more traveling. There's no time on a training field, you know. So it, did, it didn't work for, for him. Um, and the other is the lack of patience that there is with a coach. The coach is a full guy. 
You know, in, in, in football that's well organised, the club supports the team. In football that's badly organised, it's the other way around. The team has to gain the results on the field to support the club. And a lot of South American football works that way. So there's huge responsibility on results. It's all about results, results, results. I remember years ago, we had uh, uh, a meeting of, of, of Brazilian coaches and we had the director from Barcelona of La Masia, you know, the youth academy. Uh, and uh, he was laying out the philosophy and he was saying all the way from the start, right up to Barcelona B, results are not the priority. We are producing players. We are producing human beings. We are producing, if we can, stars who don't like behave who don't behave like stars, and that's always the priority. And uh, the fellow who was then coaching Brazil, a fellow called Manuel Menezes, I remember he got up and said, "Great, but this is Brazil. We can't be like that. We can't. It's all about results all the time uh, in youth football, in many senses, because the coach wants." to win in youth football, to climb up to the professional ranks and get paid more. You know, it, it, it's uh, the, the, so many of the things revol revolve around money. But anyway, so you've got a very, very difficult calendar and you've got limited job security. What, in, in that situation, what do you do? You make sure you're not, you don't lose. You haven't got time on the training field. Your players are exhausted. You set up with a cautious game plan. And... That's the way that it's been now for, for, for a fair while. They also, also got obsessed post-Holland 74. They got obsessed with the physical development of the game. Uh, and they, they, they decided that old-fashioned passing, no, there's no space on the field for that. You've got to bulk up in central midfield and the game's going to be decided on quick counterattacks down the flanks. And that became a dominant mentality of Brazilian football for a long, long time. And you had the ludicrous situation in 2018, the final of the Libertadores, South America's Champions League, was between two clubs from Argentina, Boca and River. Now, if you look at financially, the Brazilians, the top Brazilian clubs, are already in a different league. But that year, and this is typical of the way the Brazilian football had gone, one by one by one by one, they'd all been eliminated because they didn't want to play. They didn't go and get an away goal, for example. All of them. Um, it, 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 was a, it was a bit like the whole Guardiola revolution thing had left them behind. When, when Guardiola took charge of Barcelona, possession-based game, lots of little midfielders. This is supposed to be impossible from, the, from the, 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 the perspective in Brazil. You're supposed not to be able to do that. But no one had told it, Guardiola it was impossible, so they went and did it anyway. Um, and Brazil never really responded because they weren't coming up against this. They came up against it once in um, it was the, the final of the, of the Club World Cup 2011, Barcelona against Santos. And it's Santos with Neymar who's making a name for himself. And, and Barcelona won 4-0 without breaking sweat against the Santos team who'd been preparing for that match for six months. Uh, and uh, after the game, it's one of the most humiliating defeats for a coach I've ever seen. After the game, the Santos club president said, we were defeated by a type of football that we didn't even know existed. But there hasn't really been that much of a response. Not much. There's been a little bit because middle of 2019, Portuguese coach Jorge Jesus took over at Flamengo. 
he had a vital commodity. During that Copa America that you were talking about in 2019, the Brazilian league shut down because it was in Brazil. Had, if it, the competition had been anywhere else, it wouldn't have shut down. But because it was in Brazil, it shut down. So he took over and he had solid weeks on the training ground. And he played front four. Well, front four, it's it still, when, when they're all fit, it's still the front four now. Gabriel Barbosa, Gabi Gol, Bruno Henrique was a sensation. The Uruguayan, the Arascaeta, and Everton Ribeiro. At the time when Jorge Jesus took over, there was a consensus in Brazilian football, uh, including the, the, the previous coach, utterly representative of Brazilian football, Abel Braga, that you couldn't play the four together, that it would be disorganised, it would unbalance the team, it would, it would tip the team front, front forward. Now, that looks like madness, because for over two years, those four together have ripped apart defence after defence after defence. So that was a change. But there was something absolutely fundamental to that team playing with the front four. And that was a Spanish centre-back, Pablo Mari, yeah. who they picked, they picked up from the Spanish second division and came in. Because the way that Brazilian teams defend, big centre-backs who are kind of sheriffs of the penalty area, they're there to head the ball away and to head it into the goal at opposition set pieces. That's what they're there for. They cannot defend one-on-one. -on -one. They can't defend in open space. So they drop back and defend on top of their goalkeeper. And that opens up the pitch so much. The great thing that Pablo Mari gave them was a centre-back who was front forward. He would come forward. He would snuff out the fire in the opposition's half, allowing the team to stay compact uh, and, and allowing those, those, those passing movements to, uh, um, to really flow. Uh, and it's very indicative that at the end of that wonderful year they had, the one that European football picked up, and this was Brazilians at Arsenal, was Pablo Mari, who, who hasn't done particularly well at Arsenal. But that's the difference between the, the, the centre-backs in Brazilian club football and, and, and the centre-backs and centre in top-class European football. And when Brazilian football does it, I mean, Marquinhos, for me, is a sensation. Is there a better centre-back in the world? No. In Brazil, he probably, you know, Van Dijk, but he doesn't, he doesn't look it to me since he's come back. I don't think he looks quite the same player. I'd rather have Marquinhos. In Brazil, I don't think he'd have, don't think he'd have made the grade. He would have been seen as too small. You know, he, he had to go abroad. You know, they, they'd have probably play him at fullback, as happened with uh, Militão, Edo Militão, now doing very well with Real Madrid. Because of his pace, they played him at fullback. You know, and the, the, idea, the idea of someone like Alaba playing centre-back you now with that pace Brazilian football just, it just had, had two kind of huge totem poles as, as centre-backs the club football to head the ball away with defensive midfielders in front of them as a consequence of Jorge Jesus and the success of that there has been some sort of change uh, um, but there still aren't enough or they can't keep hold of enough centre-backs to play that system well. Because it becomes a high-risk position, doesn't it? And if, if, if you're going to push up, you're going you're gonna, to, you know, on, before Van Dijk's injury, Liverpool shipped seven to Aston Villa, you know, on the day when the press went wrong. And it's hard to do that press in Brazil because it's tiring. You've got all those journeys. You know, you've got all those games. So 
the calendar mitigates against the, the, the revolutionary changes that we've seen in Europe. You know, the, the calendar kind of pushes coaches towards a more cautious mindset. So we, we are seeing changes. I mean, one of, one of the best administered clubs at the moment is uh, Bragancino, um, Red Bull Bragancino. And it's very noticeable that their project starts with centre-backs who are capable of operating in a high line. But that, that, that's a battle that's going to be difficult for, for Brazilian football. That, you know, to produce centre, enough of those kind of centre-backs is not going to be easy because the good ones are sold. Like Lucas Verissimo has gone to, has gone to Benfica um, and is, 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 doing, is doing well there. Because if you're going to produce that kind of centre-back, you've got to accept the risks. And, you know, the day that it doesn't come off and you get that 7-2 or whatever it was that Liverpool got the hands of Aston Villa, that's the day that the coach gets sacked. Okay. So it's, it's far easier, and especially at youth level, when he never wants to lose like that. He wants to win one nil if possible and get himself a promotion to be a, a coach in the senior ranks where he gets paid more money. So you can see that the forces that are inclining Brazilian football to stick with your two towers who will just head and kick the ball away and then have defensive midfielders in front of them to try and ensure that your big centre-backs are never left one-on-one. -on -one. So there are some factors pushing Brazilian football in front, but there are a lot of factors dragging it back. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but it raises a few questions on my part. I'm sure many others listening to this, Tim. I suppose one being, like, you're obviously the man on the ground in Brazil. You've been there for 25-plus years, so you'll know better than most. But what you're saying is really contradicting, or it's really at odds with the image we've always been given about there Brazil. There you go. There you go. Brazil, 58 of it's 70. not for winners. It, yeah. Sorry, it's not for beginners. Um it, it's, it's very seductive, that idea, you know, of Brazilian football as being like a carnival in boots. And no, no one cares about, about how many goals you concede. It's all about self-expression. It's absolute rubbish. It, and it really is. And it, all, it always has been. Um, it's always been about results. And remember, they pioneered the back four. And uh, when they introduced it, the first World Cup, they did it 58. They didn't concede a goal till the semi-final, you know. And if you're not conceding, you get full value from every little, let every little bit of of brilliance that you, you come you come up with up front. So it's always been about winning. The question has been: as over time, the answer to the question how to win has changed, especially post Holland '74, when you know the, the dramatic improvement of Northern European football. Because you see that during the 60s, now, Germany gets a professional league organised during the 60s. Holland gets a professional league organised during the 60s. England abolishes the maximum wage at the start of the 60s. And, and that does wonders for the standard and the, and the intelligence of football as, as English football begins to react to the defeat against Hungary in, in 53. And you get this massive physical evolution. You know, the, uh, there's a stat that I got off the, the fellow who used to be Brazil's physical preparation specialist. Between the mid-70s and the mid-90s, the average distance run on the field at top level doubles. So, you know, from uh, 5,000 to 10,000 metres. And now you're getting 12 and, and, and 13 and, and, and 14. Less, uh, more running means less space. Uh, and, and, and that cemented them all the further in the idea of 
shut up shop down the central midfield and launch and launch counterattacks where there's space, which is down the flanks. It's very interesting, though. Like it reminds you of that Bruce Lee quote: "My style is no style," because I think deep down why we're all enamoured by South by South American and Brazilian football at the end of the day is kind of the win at all costs philosophy, <laughs> which we pertly saw last month in the clash between Brazil and Argentina. I mean, where else in the world would you have it? But I suppose, I mean, you must have plenty of games like that to recount over the years where there must have been instances of, you could call a shithousery on the pitch that, you know, you would have... Yeah, I, I don't think that, that um, that's when the, the sanitary officials interrupted, you know, wandered onto the field and stopped the game after five minutes. I don't think that had anything to do with shithousery in terms of wanting Brazil to beat Argentina. I think that, that, that the driver there is... Uh, that the rules had changed and Argentina don't, don't seem to have realised that and they should have declared that they'd been, that some of those players had been in England beforehand. They didn't. They didn't de declare that information at the at the, uh, at the airport and so on. And um, they were given the health of... Banking on the power of football, they spent a couple of days giving the, the health authorities the runaround. And that there's a type of Brazilian authority that is just enraged by the perspective, the thought that Brazil is a country where foreigners can come and you can do anything. That enrages them. I mean, if you look at the qualification table, there's no need for Brazil to pull any funny tricks and Brazil already have enough points. They're, the only reason they're not qualified yet for the World Cup, you know, with a third of the competition still to go, is just a mathematical fluke. No one has ever failed to get the number of points that no one's ever failed to get to, to um, 28 points has always been enough to qualify for the World Cup from South America, Brazil already have 31. So there's no need for any chicane or, any, or anything like that. I don't think it had anything to do with trying to gain an advantage on the field. I think it was the, the health authority officials were just exasperated and pissed off because they've been given a runaround for a couple of days. And there's a, there's a, a kind of like jobs worth mentality to it, you know, because the common sense thing would have been just wait for the end, of, wait till the end of the game and then sort it out. But no, you have you have transgressed. You have broken rule three, three, three fifty four, paragraph two, subsec subsection C. There's a real kind of legalese mentality in officials, and they're not they're not necessarily wrong. And rules had had been broken, um, so I see that more as an excess of, of bureaucratic zeal than a, an attempt at, at shithousery. But yes, I've seen all kinds of shithousery, all kinds, yeah, all kinds. You know, um, cold water in the in the in the visiting dressing room, not letting them on the field beforehand to uh, to warm up. You know, making sure their their dressing rooms locked, getting them a driver getting the away side a driver to take him to the stadium who deliberately gets lost on the way so they turn up, you know, 10 minutes before kickoff. All kinds of shithousery. And have you any one memory, I suppose, that would stick out in the mind? Of, of shithousery? I don't know. It's probably, it's, it's probably been too many over the years. I mean, deliberately fusing the, uh, um, the floodlights. Um, that's a common one. Where... Um, where say last day of the season and relegations, um, you know, and one team's results is dependent on, on on another one, and the games are supposed to kick off at the same time. How do you ensure that the, your game kicks off later? You know, so you have an advantage, but you deliberately fuse the floodlights. So, oh yeah, yeah, floodlights are gone. Yeah, well, it'll be half an hour getting them sorted out. So you know, by the time that your game your game kicks off, you know how the other game's going. I've seen that many times. 
And I mean, Tim, at the end of the day, if there is only one media forum where, you know, people could ring on and discuss these ideas, it certainly is the world football phone. And I mean, for an alien visit on Earth, how would you describe that platform? It's, um, I see it as like a group of mates sitting around a table and uh, uh, having a laugh, a little bit like football itself. One of my favourite football quotes, Cesar Luis Minotti. Uh, won the World Cup with Argentina in 78. And he said, you know, football's a, like a, it's it's a gift of the working class and they have the generosity of spirit to share it with everyone. So the, the, the World Football phoning, we're sitting around a table like a group of mates and you're welcome to come and join us and 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 and, and, and chat with us and be, be part, you are you are part of our little, our little group of mates. So uh, it, it's something where I think the most important thing is, is the friendships that we forge between ourselves and, be, and between all, all the listeners. And, and when, it, when it goes well, we've, we've, we've had some budget cuts. So it, it's, it's been harder over the last, over the last year or so. Um, and it, it is dependent on the quality of, of the questions that we get. But when it's going well, you feel everyone pulling in the same direction. You feel, you know, that the people who are sending text messages in and phoning up, but you also just feel the audience who are part of it. You can feel everyone, everyone pulling in the same direction. Everyone thinking, yeah, let, let, let's... Let, let's forge these friendships and let, let, let's make this great. So it's a little beacon of, of, of hope, I think, in a, in, in a bleak world. Since I've begun listening, I mean, just over four years ago now, Tim, and there's been a plethora of some fascinating topics that discussed over time. But, you know, but actually, before coming on today, speaking with yourself, there was one topic you spoke about in the past few days, and that was over the matter whether football nowadays is entertainment or sport. I would just like yeah. to hear your thoughts and for you to elaborate a bit more on that, because I think your, your answers on the pod was just very insightful. Well, I mean, what's football for? I mean, it, it's always been about a club representing a community and trying to do as well as it can on the field. Simple. But things have, things have changed in, in, the last, in the last 20, 25 years as as it's become so big, as it's become the big driver of that dreaded word content, in that you never got involved with football before if you wanted to make a profit. And certainly on English football was by design, low investments, low dividend. And all, all that was controlled. So you didn't get involved with football if you wanted, if you wanted a profit. That's no longer the case. Now the, the, the clubs that they have, owners from, from the other side of the world who are seeing the Premier League especially as part of a, of a global entertainment industry. And this, this, I think, has completely changed the priorities of, of, of some of the clubs. And the first one I think we clearly saw this with was Arsenal, who invested in the new stadium. And I think originally... And the, the promise that they sold their supporters was stadium, new stadium, bigger capacity. It means that we can compete with Manchester United on the field. And I think at the time when they went into that, I think that was probably sincere. But then the, the finances change, especially with the entry of almost like nation states, bankrolling clubs. You know, the river of money that came into Chelsea, the river of money that, 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 that has gone into, into Man City. If you're Arsenal, 
Are you prepared to spend that amount of money in order to compete? Is it justifiable to spend that amount of money in order to compete? Or with the huge international returns that you can get, how about the objective is not necessarily to win the Premier League. The objective is, if possible, let, let's hope we can get into the Champions League and just keep things ticking over at a nice enough level that the, 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 fan, the fans will, will keep buying their, their, their season tickets uh, and uh, we'll, we'll keep providing content and we'll make a profit. And I think this is something entirely new in football. And I think we've seen it in a few clubs. We've seen it in Arsenal. We've seen it in, I think we've probably seen it in Tottenham as well. And, uh, and Man United also. We're almost like the fish is, rot is rotting from the head where you can kind of see, because that, that, that mentality will pervade everything that's done. If really you're happy with fourth place, and because football's always lived that fault line, professional football, is it, is it culture or is it, is, it, is it business? And now for the first time, I think the priorities of, of, of these clubs have tipped towards business because they can make a profit from it. Uh, and the question here is, how long will the fans go along with it? And I suspect they'll go along with it for a, with a, a long, long way because it's so it's so vital to their identity. And even if they don't, there'll be there'll be a new new swathe of people prepared to shell out for the season tickets because it's important to their identity as well. But it is, it is a new thing, which is I find as as a, as a traditionalist, I find disturbing that the priority, which has never been to make money. You know, like Dal Gleish used to say when he was, he was you know, in the eight, when he was, if we're making any money, the, the supporters want to see that on the field. You know, in, that, that's all invested in players in order to make the team better, in order to win titles, because they were an institution that was devoted to the winning of titles or, you know, to perform to the, the absolute maximum of that, of that club's capacity. But I don't, I, I think increasingly in, in, in English football, that's not the case anymore that the, the objective is to provide content in all manner of different ways and profit from that. And that, that, that's entirely new. And I'm having difficulty adapting to this. And you're, what, a good 30 years younger than I am. I, I don't know what it's like for your generation or whether you just accept this with more, with, 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 as something more natural. But from my point of view, it, it, it comes across as a... Almost, almost like a treason. Yeah. But for me, I think Miguel Delaney put it really well when he was on um, the BBC Euroleaks a few weeks ago speaking about Newcastle, speaking about big business and big sport. You know, big business is dependent on financial stability. Big sports such as big football is dependent on uncertainty and competition. Yeah. Those two together, very incompatible. Sure. And I, I don't know where the end of the road is but I mean if you read anything by the Athletic in the past week it seems like the European Super League is going to be back you know fairly soon and are we well, prepared I, the thing is it's a, it's, a, it's a demented idea because I mean it's a way of start how many teams how many teams they want um, before it was 12 plus 12 three. right yeah, yeah. so right so, so you start with 16 teams in 10 years time you've got a handful of big ones and the others aren't big anymore. It's a way of concentrating even further, you know, because of the, these, the, these teams that they have, they have 
won this giant status as a result of winning the majority of their games. If they weren't, they weren't. If if they if they hadn't done that, they wouldn't be big teams. And then you put them in a super league, where you know it's like the the, the world's strongest man competition. Someone has to be the weakest of the strongest men. You know, and someone's going to finish bottom and someone's going to finish second from bottom and someone's going to finish third, third from bottom. And if you finish in bottom and you're, lo- you're losing money more games than you're winning, are you still a big club? Over time, maybe not. You know, so it, it just concentrates even further the number of, 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 of big, big teams that you have. And from the point of view of, of, of say, Tottenham, I'm, not, I'm not, not a great supporter, um, especially now I feel, feel I, haven't, I haven't been able to, to go to the new stadium. I feel very, very estranged from uh, from the whole thing but from the point of view of Tottenham it, it just seemed like you know within a decade you've lost your any, any kind of claim to any kind of big status because you're just propping up you're propping up the rest when it's uh you, you so you start with 16 giant teams and, and 10 years down the road you've got four or five but is there a feeling I mean can we view this through your quote from Cesar Luis Manotti about football being a gift from the working class. I mean, if we were to view it from Florentino Perez's eyes and the Glazers, is this a case of the working class have brought football to here? Thank you very much, shake their hands, and now we'll move it on to the masses. It, it does seem like that. Um, well, I think probably the whole thing was because Real Madrid and Barcelona have, have driven over a cliff financially and, and look, look needed a way to, to, to save themselves. Um, the action that we've seen what in the last, the, the last week of the Champions League, you know, it's great games between Atletico Madrid and Liverpool and United and Atalanta are a, a convincing argument for me that it's not necessary in, in, in sporting terms. Uh, and I, I do worry about the whole thing losing its essence. I mean, without, without that, that, I understand that they're, they're chasing the Asian market. I also understand that they're, they're obsessed with the, uh, the fact that future generations probably won't watch the full 90 minutes. They're obsessed with these changes in viewing habits. And I, I have to, you know, so I'm too old to understand it. You know, I'm too old to understand the patterns of consumption of uh, um, of of the new market, but there's a lot to be said for the old market. Is is we, we take the popularity of football entirely for granted? I think it, it's extraordinary that the popularity and importance of 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 this game. Um, so over the years, something's been going right. You know, in order in order for 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 this activity to uh, to have become so important to so many people would seem to in- indicate that the game pre-VAR and pre-Super League has been getting more things right than wrong. Yeah, I think we certainly have the foundations and I don't think they should ever be messed with. But hopefully there'll be, there will come a day where there'll be some sort of kind of competition restored. But when you look at UEFA, FIFA, Commonwealth in the past week, speaking about hosting the Copa America next year in Qatar, Speaker's belief, really, Tim. But, um, I mean, just a few questions to close now. Obviously, you've spent a vast proportion of your life in the UK and another vast proportion of your life in Brazil, Tim. But I'm curious, I mean, if there's one thing you could take from the UK to Brazil and one thing you could take from Brazil to the UK, what well, would they be? Uh, sunshine. <laughs> I'd say sun, sunshine to the UK, although the weather's been dismal for ages now. Um, Have you ever been to Cornwall? I have, yeah, yeah, many, many years ago, yeah, yeah. Um, what what I would take 
from the UK to Brazil, and I'd have to go back in time for this. But the the welfare state that allowed opportunities for me and my generation, council housing, uh, steady employment, um, paid university, uh, all of those things. I mean, I, I, I quite often see see my wife as a kind of, oh uh, yeah, that's what what would have happened to me if I'd have been born here in Brazil and, and not in the UK. And it's so much harder because um, I mean, the Beatles didn't come in a vacuum. The Beatles, who I, I actually think they're underestimated. I think it's extraordinary genius of the Beatles. That doesn't come in a back vacuum. That 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 comes because no one of their class had ever been educated so well before. Uh, the welfare state, that thing, it worked. Cheap rents, council housing, it worked. Uh, and uh, I would love to take more of more of that tradition to uh, uh, to Brazil, because I mean the, the country's in a hell of a mess. It's a real mess. And just the, the amount of people begging on the streets and in really precarious circumstances. And you're, you're looking around, and you're thinking, how on earth is this country going to be able to include all of these people in some kind of sustainable economic growth? Uh, and, and and I don't know. And if if you set up so many barriers, like I'm enraged by the fact that I have to pay the, the college of my stepdaughter. I'm enraged by it. I have to pay a university. It just drives me mad. Firstly, because I'm a tight bastard. And secondly, because what about all the people who can't afford it? You know, they're out of the game. And that, 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 that just enrages me. You know, um, I'm utterly against private health, private education. Uh, and uh, very, very much in favour of of things that have public in start, uh, uh, you know, public health, public education, public libraries, public footways, uh, public housing. If it's got public in front of it, it's probably a good thing. And I would like to bring more of that to Brazil. Good answer. If you had one metaphor to describe the beautiful game of football, Tim, what would it be? Organised chaos. Uh, and I love the fact, I love that, that tension between which the first point whoever put me onto this was, was an Irishman. It was Aylan, Eamon Dunphy in reading only a game when, when I was a kid. Um, the tension that football has between uh, individual glory and collective glory, the way that the, 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 the individual can express himself in a, in, in a team framework. Um, I, lo I, I, I love that. Um, I love the fact that in order for the individual to shine best, the balance of the team has to be right. And there are a lot of sports where that's not the case. Like an individual can shine, for example, in cricket, even if the rest of the team are, are not doing well. But in football, you know, if, if the balance of the team isn't right, the star doesn't, doesn't shine. So I, I love that because we are, bottom line, the most fundamental truth about the human being is that we are a, a, a social species, we are a collaborative species, and football brings it out. It, it brings it out both in the way that a team operates and in the fact that you, you can all be mates afterwards. You know, it's a universal language that we speak with different accents. And we spoke about earlier on about Tolstoy. I mean, you need two things to tell a great story. You need a great protagonist, the subject matter, which tonight is yourself, Tim Vickery. And the second is going on a great journey. You yourself, I mean, you're someone who's done that. You've got the T-shirt. I mean, what advice could you give to any aspiring journalist or anyone trying to make their way in the football industry today? 
Um, probably the first piece of advice I would give is is don't listen to advice from people like me um, because because things have changed. You know, I mean, the 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 uh, the industry that with which I've had a relationship, I've never been an insider. I've never known how to be an insider. I've 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 just followed my muse and done what seems to feel right. And so far, it it's always worked. I've been incredibly lucky. I'm unbelievably lucky. Obviously, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So, um, it, one piece of advice would be take public transport. Pick up on the stories of the fans. See what it means. Because I think that there's a tendency at the moment to be too clinical with the stats and all the rest of it. It's a human drama. Never forget it's a human drama. And I, I loved, a big influence on me was, was Hugh McIlvanny, who in a British context was such a fantastic writer about putting sport. He, he wrote, I think he wrote even better about boxing than he did about football. Um, but he, uh, he, he always made it a drama about the human being. So I, I think, you know, your raw material of, of, of your story is the human being. And another piece of advice I would be is listen to uh, the long version of uh, John Coltrane's version of, of My Favourite Things and listen to the piano solo of McCoy, uh, McCoy Tyner and the way that he hits the keys. Boy, does he hit them. He hits them with conviction. Right with conviction. Know what you want to say and say it don't be a bore you know be aware of of the insignificance of your own opinion but never be humble be arrogant a little bit a little bit of arrogance as long as you know that you're in the insignificance of your own opinion and as long as you know that this that your subject is more important than yourself have a clear thing to say and say it with conviction hit the keys hard the way that McCoy Tyner does when he's playing piano on my favorite things. Tim, I mean, it's been an absolute privilege and honor for myself to speak to you after listening to you <laughs> behind an iPhone for four years on the world mm -hmm. football phone. And um, I hope you got as much out of this chat as I did. And I know certainly everyone listening will too. Tim, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs>